Well, it's so good to be together. Uh, good to have some visitors with us today as well. We, we are so thankful that you're able to, to join us and worship with us today. Uh, we are in the Psalms, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 32. As you do, let's just think about some familiar stories. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, what did they do? They hid from God, sought to cover their nakedness. When Moses confronted Aaron after he had fashioned the golden calf on Mount Sinai, what did Aaron do? He made up a story. He said, the people made me do it, and I threw in the gold, and out came this golden calf. When Achan stole some of the devoted things from Jericho, and Israel was defeated in battle, what did Achan do? He kept silent until the lot finally exposed him. When Peter confronted Sapphira after Ananias had died for their sin and deceit, what did she do? She, she lied to Peter. And then we'll go outside the Bible for this one. When you hear your children fighting and you ask them to tell you what happened, what do you often hear? You hear two diametrically opposite stories that can't possibly both be true. You know, when we sin... We hide. When we sin, we lie. When we sin, we try to cover it up. This is our natural fallen instinct. But Psalm 32 points us to a better way. This morning we're continuing our summer series through the Psalms. We're calling them Psalms of the Spirit. And what we have in Psalm 32 is a Spirit-inspired psalm written by King David that holds out to us the wisdom of confession and the blessing of God's forgiveness. The wisdom of confession and the blessing of God's forgiveness. Listen to David's words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. There's three parts of this psalm. It begins with David's declaration in verses 1 and 2. David's declaration. 
The psalm begins with King David declaring truth to us that can be summed up like this. Here's what David says in verses 1 and 2. Happy are the forgiven. Happy are the forgiven. Happy are those who have received forgiveness from the Lord. We saw the same language in Psalms 1 and 2 a few weeks ago. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Lord's anointed. This word blessed, blessed literally means happy, truly happy. And here the blessed man, the happy man, is the forgiven man. This is David's declaration. True and lasting happiness belongs to all whom God has forgiven of their sin. Happy are the forgiven. Now David declares the richness of this in three ways. He he talks about forgiveness from a few perspectives. He talks about transgression being forgiven, sin being covered, and iniquity not being counted. Each of these statements helps us grasp what we mean when we say, God has forgiven me. We say that a lot, don't we? But what are we saying when we say, God has forgiven me? First, David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So whenever you hear that word transgression, you should think law. Transgression is about breaking God's law. The picture is that you go beyond a boundary. You step over a line. God's law is what defines the boundaries for God's righteousness. And those who transgress have crossed over those boundaries. Transgression is law-breaking. It's passing over the boundary of God's law. And here, David speaks of transgression being forgiven. Transgression being forgiven. And to understand what that means, what does it mean that my transgression, my law-breaking is forgiven, we look at what he says next. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. So here we see a picture to help us grasp what God's forgiveness is like. And the picture is of God covering our sin. God covering our sin. Now this does not mean that God simply sweeps our sins under the proverbial rug This isn't like how we might just throw a big blanket over our dirty laundry when guests are about to arrive. No, the picture of God covering our sin is akin to God covering the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the garden. It means that in forgiveness, God removes the shame of what we've done. In forgiveness, God covers our sin by clothing us. Sin doesn't only bring shame, however, it also brings guilt. And so this is what David addresses next. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So if a transgression is the act of breaking God's law, then iniquity is the guilty verdict for getting caught in the act. Our transgressions have made us guilty. We have iniquity because we have transgressed God's law. But here we have another description of God's forgiveness. In forgiveness, God does not count our iniquity against us. In other words, even though we actually are guilty, God is the judge, and in forgiveness, he does not charge us with that guilt. He does not count our iniquity against us. Now, church, take a moment this morning to consider your sins. In what ways have you transgressed God's law? Consider the Ten Commandments. Consider the Sermon on the Mount. Consider what false gods have I turned to? Consider how have I dishonored God's name? Consider what sins have I committed against my family, against my spouse, against my neighbors, against my church? 
Consider, how have I failed to love the Lord with all that I am? How have I failed to love my neighbor as myself? Consider your transgressions this morning. Consider the shame of your transgressions. Consider the guilt of your transgressions. Consider the ugliness of your sin before a holy God. Consider the just punishment your sin deserves. And now hear David's words again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whom the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So do you want to experience the happiness of God's forgiveness today? Do you desire to know the blessedness of having your transgression forgiven, of having your sin covered, of having your guilt removed? Well, then listen to the final line of David's declaration. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here, David tells us that there is a prerequisite for forgiveness. Contrary to what many believe, not everyone is forgiven. Not everyone will have their shame covered and their guilt removed. The blessing of forgiveness comes to those in whose spirit there is no deceit. Which is to say that God's forgiveness comes to those who are honest about their sins before him. God's forgiveness comes to those who confess their sins. Here we learn a crucial truth. Unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin. Unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin. The joy of forgiveness only comes to those who confess. And David can declare this because David has experienced this himself. Leads us to the next section of the psalm, David's testimony. David's testimony. Verse 3 begins with these words, For when I kept silent. For when I kept silent. He's looking back at a season of unconfessed sin. Now we can't say for sure when this would have been. It seems likely that it was in the months following his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. But whenever it was, David knew he had transgressed God's law, but David chose to keep silent about his sin. He chose to continue on as if he had not sinned. He chose to try and get away with what he had done instead of to confess what he had done. But this choice to keep silent had consequences. He says in verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The effect of David's silence was the evaporation of David's strength, like water will evaporate in the heat of summer. He's using physical imagery here, bones wasting away like a corpse, strength drying up in a hot summer day. But he's probably describing something not physical, but something inward and spiritual in nature. He's using these physical descriptions to describe the, the experience of his heart. At the very center of this experience was the reality of what David describes as the heavy hand of God. While David remained silent about his sin, God pressed his strong hand of conviction down on David's heart. And God made David miserable in his guilt. While David was keeping his sin in the dark, the convicting hand of God created a continual groaning 
in David's soul. Outside, he was silent. Outside, it seemed like he was okay, but inside, he was groaning all day long under the weight of God's heavy hand of conviction. You may know what this feels like. The, 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 the weight of unconfessed sin, which can only be explained by the, the working of God's Spirit pressing on your heart, pressing on your conscience, so that you, you know and feel that you are not right with God and others. And this weight of God's heavy hand finally led David to this decision in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The heavy hand of God was a mercy that caused David to finally break his silence. He decides finally to speak to God about his sin. He decides to stop trying to cover his guilt. He decides to confess his law-breaking to the Lord. And when he did, look at what happened. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When David confessed his sin, the Lord forgave his sin. When David stopped covering his shame, the Lord covered his shame. When David acknowledged his guilt, the Lord removed his guilt. And there was nothing more for David to do. There was no list of works that had to be done to make up for the wrong that had been done. One commentator describes verse 5 like this, The forgiveness is as complete as the sin was serious and as immediate as the confession is spoken. The forgiveness was as complete as the sin was serious and as immediate as the confession is spoken. When David confessed, he experienced the principle of God's grace. Confessed sin is forgiven sin. Confessed sin is forgiven sin. This is David's testimony. And he shares it because he wants his people to experience it too. His desire is that his people would know the blessing of forgiveness that he had. And this leads to the final few sections of the psalm, which we'll put together under the heading of David's counsel. David's counsel. In another psalm of David, Psalm 51, David confesses his sin to the Lord. It's a, it's a psalm of repentance, and he seeks God's forgiveness. And in verse 13 of that psalm, David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. God, forgive me, cleanse me, make me right. And when you do, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. This is what David's doing in Psalm 32. As one who had transgressed God's law, who had confessed his sin, and who received forgiveness, his desire is now to teach sinners the ways of God's grace. His passion is to help others turn from their sin, help others return to the Lord. And so he gives counsel to his people. We can boil down his counsel to four instructions today. And these four instructions are four applications for us that we learn from David's declaration and David's testimony. Four pieces of counsel from King David. First, pray while you can. Pray while you can. David says in verses 6 and 7, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This first instruction 
is an extended allusion to the story of Noah and the flood. You guys know the story of Noah, right? Because the world had become so incredibly wicked, God decided that he would bring his judgment by sending a flood to destroy the earth. And he chose one man, Noah, and his family to build an ark to protect them from those floodwaters of judgment. Now between the time that God revealed to Noah that a flood was coming and the time that the flood actually came, what we understand is that Noah didn't only build the ark, Noah warned the people. Scripture calls Noah a herald of righteousness. He warned the people. He proclaimed that a flood was coming. Before the flood came, there was opportunity to repent and to be delivered, but once the rain began to fall, that opportunity was gone. Well, like Noah before him, David uh, takes that story and counsels the people, pray to God while he may be found. Call out to God before the flood of his judgment arrives, before the rush of great waters comes. If you confess your sins today, then you'll be kept safe from the judgment on that day. You'll experience the same thing I've experienced. God will be your hiding place. God will be your ark. God will preserve you from trouble. God will surround you with shouts of deliverance. But you must pray to him while you still can. You must seek him while he may be found. There are two events that we need to keep in mind as we think about this first instruction. Two events in your life. Two events in history. One is the day of your death. And two is the day of Christ's return. The day of your death and the day of Christ's return. One of these days will come upon you. You'll meet one of these days. Either the day you die or the day Jesus returns. One of those days will be a day you experience. And you do not know when it will be. Your death could be tonight. Christ's return could be tomorrow. You do not know, you cannot know, but what you must know is that whichever of those days comes first, once it comes, there will be no more opportunity to be saved. Once it comes, there will be no more opportunity to repent. The floodwaters will reach you on that day. Today is the day when God may be found. Today is the day that you can confess your sins to him and be saved. Today is the day of salvation. And so hear David's counsel, pray while you can. Just as the ark protected Noah from the flood, so God himself will be your hiding place from his judgment if you confess your sins today. Pray while you can. David's second piece of counsel, don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. This is really an extension of his first instruction because though David's already laid out the reality of judgment coming and, and the availability of salvation today, David also knows the stubbornness of the human heart. He knows how prone we are to, to hear that, but not to do anything. To know what we should do, but not to do it. He knows our capacity for foolishness and stubbornness. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
Notice two things here about what David says. First, hear the affection of David for his people. This is the king of Israel, and, and his affection comes through as he says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David is a good and loving king, and his disposition for God's people is like a father's disposition to his children. This isn't cold instruction. This is personal and warm and loving. David is seeking the good of God's people, and, and we hear that today understand that, that, that Jesus seeks our good as he gives this instruction. Jesus has his eye upon you as he counsels you and, and, and says, listen to my instruction. And then think about the image that David employs. A stubborn animal that has to be curbed with a bit and bridle in order to go the right direction, in order to go the direction the master wants it to go. It won't do what it's supposed to do without the strong hand of the master painfully redirecting it. And we need to realize that David's talking about himself here. This image of a stubborn mule captures the time when he was silent. It captures the time when he would not confess it took the heavy hand of God to redirect David and lead him to confession. And here's David's point. David is saying, just like a father would tell his children about mistakes that he's made along the way, David is saying, don't be like me. Don't be a mule. Don't be stubborn and foolish. Don't put off confession. Don't invite the heavy hand of God by trying to cover your own sin. Don't be stubborn. Have understanding and confess your sin today. Church, hear the wisdom of David this morning. When you put off confession, you are inviting the heavy hand of God on your life. When you put off confession, you're inviting the Lord's discipline. And though that discipline we praise God for because it is a mercy to us, how much better is it to confess early and to experience the joy of forgiveness without the heavy hand of God making us miserable? Don't be like David. End your silence today. And acknowledge your sins to the Lord. Pray while you can. Don't be stubborn. Third piece of counsel, trust God's love. Trust God's love. And here's the question underneath this entire subject. Why don't we confess? Why do we seek to cover our sins from the Lord? Why do we keep silent? Like Adam and Eve, after they ate the fruit, why is our gut instinct to hide from God? Listen to what David says in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now, without any context, if I just pulled verse 10 out and just said verse 10 to you without any context, it'd be easy to hear that and read, read it kind of like this. Many are the sorrows of those who break God's commandments, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in God and, of course, keeps his commandments. It'd be easy to read the verse like that and, and just to read it like Psalm 1, a description of the wicked, a description of the righteous. But we have a context here. And that context is all about confession of sin. And, and that helps us understand who are the wicked here. The wicked is, is not merely transgressors. The wicked are those who choose not to confess their transgressions to the Lord. The wicked are those who continue hiding in their sin. The ones who remain silent, who try to cover their sins. And David warns us that that path is a path of many sorrows. Miserable is the man who refuses to confess 
his wickedness. Miserable is the man who, who, who chooses to continue in his sin. But there's an alternative. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This description, the one who trusts in the Lord, when you understand that David's not changed his focus to someone else, it's not that he was talking about those who confess and now he's talking about those who trust. No, he is still commending confession, but he's describing the root of confession here. Confession to the Lord is an act of trust in the Lord. The reason we don't confess is because we don't trust. The one who trusts in the Lord confesses to the Lord. It comes down to this. Who do you believe God is to you when you sin? Who is God to you when you sin? How will God respond to you when you confess your sin to him? When we hide, when we cover, when we're silent, it's because we are believing a lie about God. We are believing that we will be met with judgment. We are believing that our sin has kindled his anger and we are afraid of the punishment that we might face if he finds out. When we don't confess, it is because we believe that our sin has turned God's heart against us. Church, that notion is a lie meant to keep us from returning to the Lord. The truth is that when we sin, God's heart is for us. When you sin, God's heart is for you. And this changes everything. Isaiah 55, we have another very similar call to confession. It begins the exact same way as verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God's calling his people in Isaiah to, to seek him and confess their sins. And then, then it says, let the wicked forsake his way the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then listen to what God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, we, we hear that verse often, and we, and we usually use it to describe that, that God works in mysterious ways, and we can't always see what he's doing in our lives, but his ways are higher than ours. That's true. It's not what Isaiah 55 is talking about. Isaiah 55 is talking about what we think God will do when we confess our sins versus what he will actually do when we confess our sins. The Lord is saying to us, you think that I will respond to your sin with judgment and anger, but my ways are higher than your ways. You might respond like that to somebody. You might respond to someone's sin with judgment and anger and unforgiveness, but I'm not like that. Here's what I'm like. If you forsake your sin and return to me, I will respond with compassion and abundant pardon. I will have mercy on you. I will receive you. I will forgive you. You can trust me. You can bring your sin to me. My heart is for you. And this is what David is getting at when he says, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. If you confess your sins to God, you will not be met with anger and judgment. You will be surrounded by his loyal love. You'll be surrounded by his loyal 
love. This is who God will be to you. This is God's heart for you in your sin. He is ready to abundantly pardon you. He is ready to surround you with his love. And it all comes down to whether you believe that this is true. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? If you trust that this is who God is, you will confess your sins to him. Trust God's love. And all this leads to one final piece of counsel from David. Rejoice in justification. Rejoice in justification. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David ends his call to confession with a call to worship. Now here's the question, who is David addressing? Who who is David calling to be glad and to rejoice and shout for joy? The the text says, you righteous, you upright in heart. Again, we might might hear that and think he's, he's, he's talking to those who have not sinned. He's talking to the righteous. He's talking to the upright in heart. Those who, those who are living for God, he's calling them to rejoice. But that's not the context, right? Who are the righteous? Who are the upright in heart? In light of this psalm, there can only be one answer to that question. The righteous are those who have trusted in the Lord, confessed their sins to him, and been forgiven. The righteous are those who have trusted in God, confessed their sins, and received his forgiveness. The righteous are not the sinless. The righteous are the forgiven. The forgiven are declared righteous. And what we have here is an Old Testament revelation of the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. As we just saw, confession to the Lord is rooted in trust in the Lord. It's rooted in faith when a sinner believes in who God is, trusts in God by confessing their sin. Here's what God does. He forgives their sin and he declares them to be righteous. God justifies them. We already saw back in verse 2 that in forgiveness, God does not charge our guilt against us. Now we see that in forgiveness, God actually declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is wonderful news for sinners like you and me, that, that, that though we are actually guilty, God will declare us righteous. But at the same time, this psalm presents a major problem to us. How is God righteous if he's justifying the wicked? How is God just in declaring us to be righteous? We would never stand for it if a human judge decided not to pass a guilty verdict on someone who was guilty. We would call corruption on that. So how then can we say that God is righteous when he declares the guilty to be righteous? (coughs) This problem, how God can be both righteous in himself and yet justify the unrighteous, is finally resolved through the promised son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He alone never sinned. Jesus never needed God's forgiveness for anything. And then, the sinless Jesus died the death of sinners on a cross. Not only was he rejected by man, but on the cross he was forsaken by God himself. The sinless son of David died a sinner's death on the cross. And in Romans 3, the Apostle Paul tells us why he did this. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's why. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is it that a righteous God can forgive sin? How is it that a just God can justify the ungodly? How is that not a miscarriage of justice? Well, it would be if all God was doing was turning a blind eye to our sin. But that's not what God does in forgiveness. Here's the missing piece of the puzzle in Psalm 32. Propitiation. Propitiation. A propitiation is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that stands in the place of the guilty and absorbs the judgment that sin deserves. And Romans 3 tells us that God himself put Jesus forward as this wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Our sins against God. God put forward a sacrifice to propitiate his own wrath so that we do not need to face that wrath. Jesus bore the judgment our sins deserve. Jesus took our place. God has not turned a blind eye to our sin. He's judged our sins in Jesus. And this is the basis for the forgiveness of Psalm 32, which is exactly where Paul turns next in Romans chapter 4. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Put all this together, church. The forgiveness of God in Psalm 32 has been purchased by the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. We can be sure that God will meet us with his steadfast love when we confess because God's wrath has been poured out in full on Jesus instead of us. Confessed sin can be forgiven sin because Jesus bore our sin. And now when we confess our sins in faith, God will forgive. He will cover. He will justify. He will shout deliverance over you. He will surround you with his covenant love. And so now hear David's call to worship again. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Church, I know that we have sorrows. I know there are weighty and difficult things going on in our lives. I know there are anxieties that you have brought with you today. I know there are troubles you will have to face this week. But if you are in Jesus Christ, then none of these things changes this fundamental truth. God has forgiven you of your sins. God has covered your shame. God has declared you righteous. You are forgiven, church. You're forgiven. And if this reality doesn't move us to glad-hearted rejoicing, it's because we are forgetting what forgiveness is all about. We heard it last week in Psalm 16. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The reason forgiveness brings us joy is because forgiveness brings us back to God. We rejoice in our justification because it's the basis of our reconciliation. The reason the forgiven are happy is because the forgiven have been restored to their creator. 
And this is why we are glad in the Lord today. This is why we rejoice. We've been forgiven by God, and now we get to enjoy the presence of God. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you have sin this morning? You don't need to stay melancholy. You don't need to stay somber. Through forgiveness, you can move to rejoicing today. And this brings us to the Lord's Supper. Just as Psalm 32 calls us to confession and rejoicing, so does the Supper. The Supper calls us to confession and it calls us to rejoicing. God calls us to confession through the Supper by reminding us of the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus for our sins. God calls us to trust his sacrifice by confessing our sins when we take the Supper and believing that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So the Supper calls us to confession. But not only that, the Supper calls us to rejoicing because it is a supper. It is a meal. God is inviting us to his table. He's inviting us to fellowship with himself. As we take the Supper, God surrounds us with shouts of deliverance from our sin. And God surrounds us with his steadfast love. Imagine that, church, as you take the supper and confess your sins. Imagine God hovering over and around you, shouting deliverance over you. Shouting deliverance, surrounding you with loyal love. This is the fellowship that God invites us to when we take the supper. So this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, God invites you to the table. This morning, if you have unconfessed sin, God invites you today, now, to confess it to him. And when you confess, God assures you today that because of Jesus' sacrifice, you are forgiven. So as we come to the table, church, let's confess our sins together, and then let's be glad in the Lord. Rejoice as those declared righteous shout for joy to the God who shouts deliverance over us.